Today on Time Out Coaching, we continue with our series of special podcasts. We have two of the biggest legends of our game. Their reputation as not only two of the greatest to play in the UK, but also both have coached GB underage teams to success in Europe. I'm pleased to welcome coach Steve Bucknell and coach Carl Brand. Guys, how are you? Great to, great to see you. You know, I mean, your careers, you know, obviously speak for themselves, but I really want to go back right to the start. Um, Steve, we'll start, start with you because, um, you know, your, your junior basketball um, experience in this country. I mean, you, you were coached by what I consider one of the, the all-time greats. I mean, you know, talk to me about how you got involved in the game very quickly and, um, and how much, you know, you, you, you took from that experience first, first of all. Many, many years ago, um, you know, I was in South London, a kid trying to, to figure out really what you're going to do with, with your life. Um, you, at that time, you think it goes forever. But, you know, back in those days, you get to 16, you get to that age, you know, you, you were expected to go and work. So I was lucky enough that I found basketball and I just enjoyed playing it. Just, just had something with the basketball, with the with the, the idea of going into a gym, a space by yourself. You didn't have to have, you know, 10 other guys to play. And uh, obviously my my height and uh, whatever athleticism I had played a part in that. I just found the game. From there, really, I got scouted uh, by Richard Rudd of Crystal Palace. I think he was around the Mallory area. Probably must have been doing a session there down at Keith Dwan. He used to have a run down there a long time ago and I probably you know as a young player I used to go everywhere and play it didn't matter where it was somebody somebody has a game there's something going on I'd get I'd get down there and play and I think uh Richard Rudd who was a senior player at Crystal Palace at the time and the coach was probably doing some scouting probably heard something anyway I went down there me and Joe Moore was there another legend of the game and uh he he kind of came over to me during a, a break and said, what about, you know, coming to Crystal Palace? I, had to, I didn't even know what Crystal Palace was, to be honest. So I said, yeah, whatever. You know when you're arrogant, you're young. Yeah, I'll, you know, we'll see. Um, after he left and I talked to uh, some other players there who who actually had experience and knew about Crystal Palace, they were like, wow, that's Crystal Palace. You know, that's they're one of the best teams around. Um, obviously, that perked my attention right there because when they say they're the best around, uh, something like that always caught my attention. So I realized that I need to go down there and see what they've got. Uh, I was always a competitor, Tony. So I wanted to see what players were down there. And that's really how I started. I went down there and I realized I wasn't that good. And uh, and that forced me to kind of step up my game and intensity in, in what I was doing. And they had a guy there, um, Roy Packham, legendary coach, Developed so many internationals, players, Mick Betts, uh, Paul Simpsons, those guys of that, Jerry, but so many, 19, 20, 30 players. And I went to that environment. And that's the first time I really saw a basketball environment where we had all the junior teams practicing, the women's team. Then at the end, the men's team would practice and you would sit around and watch Alton Bird and Bob Rona and uh, Bob Roma. And that got me excited to, to play the game. Because obviously I said, I want to be there. I want to be on that court. But obviously I could never get on. 
they would never allow me to go on with the men's practice. But that's kind of where it started. And Roy, Roy was a disciplinarian, to be honest. Uh, not everybody got on with Roy. I can't say that we saw eye to eye. But what Roy did teach me was, was how to be a kind of a tough son of a gun. I'm sure I had it in me. But Roy really t- toughened me up in some of his sessions. I've never done so much running in my life. But, you know, but Roy Steve, is the type of guy. Go ahead. When you, you're saying, though, that Roy, uh, that there were some that didn't get on with Roy, but, you know, his resume speaks for itself and the amount of players that just kept, it was a conveyor belt um, that kept on coming through with all of these players. So, you know, did, did, did some just fall to the wayside? Is that what you're saying? Because of this, the, 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 the strictness of the practices? I think that some didn't didn't want that structure, that strictness. And I was probably one of them, but I saw good sense because I saw the quality of play around. I saw the, the, the improvement in the players and these players would go on and play for England and have professional careers. So, you know, the other ones that left, they went to, I wouldn't say lesser clubs, but different environments and they didn't succeed. That was a different journey for them. I wanted the journey of uh, success. And Palace was it. But as I said, Roy, Roy was tough. Everybody would tell you that. Roy, I remember Roy used to have us running the steps at Crystal Palace um, Athletic Stadium. He'd have you doing stuff like that. And you're like, Roy, please, why, you know, why are we doing this? But Roy would be there pushing you. You'd have to go and do that if you want to make the team. And then he would take you into the gym and have you doing suicides. So <laughs> you, you were in shape, but you always questioned um, why we had to do so much, then he could, why we have to run so much. But I'll tell you something, when you got in the court and played the opponents, we usually blew them away. One, one quick question before I move on to Carl. Um, you, I mean, we could go on forever on the Crystal Palace structure. You know, I asked the question to a former player, uh, Mick Bett, because I just had Mick Bett on the podcast. Um, do you think that having that level of facility um, with the ability to practice and see all of these teams practicing also was part of the reason for the success of the program? To some extent, I think the aspirations, right? You, you, you go there and you're probably coming from a, a situation where you're on one team playing a little sports hall or a school hall, and then you get down to Crystal Palace, a sports center, uh, a huge a huge sports center with a tradition, and then you see all these all these different age groups, all these um, basketball people really enthralled about basketball and passionate about basketball. So that would push you just to being in that environment. Right. Carl, um, what about yourself? Slightly different. Um, a lot but, different. You know, a lot different. <laughs> talk, talk to me about, you know, the people that were really influential, you know, in, in, in your upbringing and, and how they helped you within, within that Leicester uh, area of program? I think um, um, back in our days, so you're going way back, um, Leicester, Leicester Junior Basketball was more or less non-existent. I was um, a football player. So football was my, my number one passion. But the school that I went to, um, uh, one of the head PE teachers was a guy named um, Carl Olsen at Moat, Moat Boys School. And within that school, there was a, a guy who you know very well, you've had him on your podcast, um, Paul James, both from Highfields in Leicester. It's a bit like the Brixton of London, uh, not as vibrant, but a smaller version where 
a lot of Antiguans came. So they, they, when they when a lot of the Antiguans came, they settled in East London in Leighton, and they settled in Highfields in Leicester. And it's still, I think there's a big uh, Antiguan community still down in uh, Leighton, down in East London. So basketball was a thing where I just fell into it because it was too cold outside to play football. I used to get in trouble all the time, and it was Carl Olsen that said, look, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to go out into the, into the playground. You're causing too much trouble around school. He just gave me a basketball and put me in the, in the sports hall. And I just started bouncing, shooting, and it just happened organically. And then when I used to see um, Paul James, he was about three, four years older than me, and he was one of the, the best in Leicester. You know, he had uh, tryouts for England. You know, I used to, to watch him in the same school. We used to play pickup together. And then I joined uh, Leicester, it was called Leicester Planters back then at, Granby, at the old Granby Halls, the infamous Granby Halls, legendary Granby Halls, where we would have junior training. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I played uh, under 15s. So I was just like Steve, I was quite cocky and um, was one of the, the best players on the team, but I couldn't shoot. I used to just drive all the time, push people out the way. So what I didn't know, there was a coach called Jerry Hull. Um, he coached the under-18s. So that he said to Paul, he said, look, we want to get Carl into the under-18s. We need to toughen them up. We need to let him see that there's a bigger picture to do with basketball. So I started to train with the under-18s and all the under-18s were told that anytime I go to the basket to hard foul me, don't let me get away with anything because they wanted me to learn, you know, and it was to toughen me up. But I loved it. I loved playing with the under 18s. And I just, basketball was so infectious to me. I just wanted to play all the time. So it, it happened organically. Then it was Jerry Hull and um, Simon Fisher's father, um, who was the England under 15 coach. And that's how I got onto the under 15 ladder for uh, basketball in England. But it was Carl Olsen, Paul James, Winston Gordon. Uh, Steve O'Shea, it was those guys that I look, looked up to, and even uh, Kevin Routledge, because he was playing for the Loughborough All-Stars with his big beard. So it was people like that when I was that young that I used to look up to, and I was like, wow, I wish I could get there, but I didn't know how to do it. So both of you um, have this journey then to America, and, you know, of course, now we're talking in a generation where most of these young people don't really understand, you know, they, they set up a YouTube clips and they've got all their coaches pushing them and the Internet is there. But, you know, was were Steve, were you was it? Uh, did it ever, what was the process to, to, for the, was it an aspiration or did someone just suddenly say to you, um, I'm going to, you, you can go to America. I can, I can get you involved in high school. And then obviously with Carl, you, 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 you went the same route, but what, what was, was Steve, what was the aspiration there? When I was young, the extent of my basketball knowledge was the Crystal Palace senior team and everybody played uh, at the Christmas tournament. So I knew there was, there, there was a big world out there. I've heard of the NBA. I started to, to gain some knowledge of, on that by reading magazines, but I never really thought I would ever get the opportunity. Uh, I think it was sometime in the summer, I was about 15. Roy, 
um, I believe, came up to me after somebody turned him down. <laughs> I know that. Somebody turned down the offer. I won't say any names, but they turned down the offer um, to go to the States. So, obviously, I started to get into the basketball a little bit more, starting to know a little bit more. Again, Alton Bird and that senior team was inspirational in that because I said there, there was a world out there that I need to find out. Uh, and, you know, Bird was always saying it. America, you know, is where is where the top basketball is played. So, yeah, Roy offered me an opportunity to go to the States and uh, said, you know, if you go to a, to a summer camp and you do well, um, people will come and look at you and there's an opportunity for a few high schools just to have a look at you. Uh, again, I went home, told, told my father uh, what Roy had said. He wasn't too interested, to be honest. He liked cricket. Uh, but my mum... Um, she was like, you need to look at this seriously because, you, you know, you're coming to the end of your school, secondary school, and, you know, you seem to like this sport and it's, and it's keeping you focused. It's something you got to look at. So, yeah, went back to Roy, said, I'm interested. I think the next thing was to try to find the, 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 the money for the ticket. Uh, that was a drama in itself. Uh, I went back to my school teacher who really looked after me, Chris Owen, uh, passed away. And uh, he was always there. And I told him, listen, we're, we're struggling. You know, we need a few quid, my parents, to, to get me to the States. Uh, a couple of weeks later, he came up with the rest of the money. Um, I had to go down to, is it Victoria, where you get your, your visa and everything and, all, and your passport? I had to do that all by myself. Imagine that. You, it's not heard of now with these youngsters. But I had to do that all myself. Go down there, about 15 years old, get my passport, and then uh, jumped on the plane, I think I might have had one bag with, <laughs> I had one bag, jumped on the plane and that's where it all started to me and then went to camp. And from there, it seems like, yeah, I was propelled because I seemed to do well in these environments, these competitive environments. Um, I went over there, you know, the first three camps I went to, I pretty much got in a fight with the top guy in the camp and all three of them. And uh, that was kind of, I remember, um, Owen, I forgot his name. Dave, o is it? No, Cowens. Dave Cowens. Right. Dave Cowens. I went to Dave Cowens' camp. You remember him from the Celtics? Yeah, yeah from Celtics. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I went to his camp, and there was this kid there, and he was about my size. You know, he had the swagger. He thought he was the best kid there. Everybody knew him. And I just came in from nowhere, raggedy kid with my hair pushed back like it was, speaking half Jamaican, half London. No one knew what I was saying. And this kid tried to go at me. Well, that was a mistake for him. So, you know, Dave Owens comes, runs out, and he's like, oh, I, I like your intensity. I like your intensity. And it, and it kind of went from there. And um, so you ended up, obviously, at high school. Carl, you know, yeah. what, what, was your, what was your quick route to there? And then we're going to talk, you know, about these, these two, you know, you know major institutions. My, my quick route was um, I was in my... Uh, Last year, now it would be called year 11. I was 16 years old, um, playing up, just playing streetball outside on Victoria Park. And uh, a guy named Joel Fanari, um, he seen me playing on the park. Yeah. So just before that, I went to the Syracuse Jim Beheim camp that pre that during the summer. And I made the all-star all team. So I went there for two weeks, made an all-star team for two weeks in a row, went out there with Paul James, and it was a great experience. Had some high school offers, but I didn't know anything about high school. 
um, just like Steve, parents didn't have any money. So I came back, didn't think anything of it. And then um, the professional coach was coaching for Leicester at the time, heard about me, came up to Victoria Park, was watching me play. And he said, look, you know, I've got a high school in the States, you know, if you'd like to go, call Southdale High School in a, in a little red redneck town, Hick Town, 3A school. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll go. Because I'm 16, I, I just love playing the game, you know, without a care in the world. So obviously spoke to my parents. They sorted something out to where I went at 16 to high school and it was just a whole culture shock. And it was a culture change because the basketball there was totally different to what I was used to in England. Um, so, you know, obviously both of you, I'll, I'll move it on a little bit. Um, you know, after, you know, playing in high school, you went, you obviously went to, to JUCO. Um, you both end up at these two of the most famous, you know, colleges, obviously, Steve, you end up at North Carolina and Carl at, at Georgia Tech um, with two legendary coaches. Um, you know, Steve, talk very quickly about the recruiting process, how you ended up at North Carolina. Um, and at that stage, did you start to realize, you know, how big it was? Um, and then I'll ask, you know, Carl, and we'll start talking about this, 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 the, the philosophies of these coaches. Yeah, going through high school, I went to a boarding school. So, you know, I stayed a lot on campus and on the weekends, they used to have the games, the games were on TV and Obviously, uh, North Carolina, when it's a, a big CBS or NBC, they, they'd always be on show. And you would sit there and watch Michael Jordan and stuff. And you, yeah, you dream, but you never think it was a reality, to be honest, that whatever happened to you. Um, I still, still didn't think I was going to go to a, a big school until really my junior year. But once my junior year, um, you know, panned out where I, I was MVP at the five stars, I was, you know, I got all American accolades. I kind of knew, okay, you can do this thing. You can get a scholarship. Um, North Carolina was always in the back of my mind, but I never thought they would come knocking. I never thought I was good enough, to be honest, because, you know, when you see that team playing, that 82 team and everything, you're like, wow, I'm not sure if I can get to those kind of standards with Worthy, uh, Perkins and Jordan. Uh, but anyway, it was at the back of my mind, and uh, I started to play AAU ball junior year. And I remember before game, uh, Leo Papil was actually GM at Boston Celtics at some point back. He came in, Italian guy, slick, you know, the Italians, they can talk, slick talker. He goes, hey, uh, he used to call me Buck, say, Buck, uh, there's, there's a, a coach out there you might be interested in. I'm like, yeah, whatever. What are you talking about? He goes, North Carolina's out there. And uh, obviously, my heart starts beating. I remember my heart starts beating. I've had, I've had other coaches from all over come and look. It didn't really bother me, I'm going to be honest with you. But when I heard North Carolina was there, right before the game, I started to get nervous. And I think Leo knew he took me away. He was like, let's calm down. It's a normal game. Don't worry about it. Just go out there and play how you normally play. Fair enough. We start to warm up. And now I get into it, you know, as a baller would. Oh, it's time now. So I really start to warm up incredibly hard, probably 10, 20% harder than I usually would. Drenching in sweat, dunking it, doing everything the, the right way. And I'm like, I'm ready. 
I'm ready. North Carolina's out there. I didn't even know who the coaches were, to be honest. It wasn't Dean Smith. I know him. Oh, so I didn't I even saw, know who the coaches were. But it, but it would have been it would have been Bill Guthridge or Roy Williams, I'm assuming. Well, I'm getting to that part, ain't I? I know that now. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was Coach Guthridge. It was Coach Guthridge uh, came down. But anyway, I'm the, the, the main story was that I warmed up. I got ready to go. I went into the game. Obviously, you're nervous. You want to play. And the first play of the game, I must have went in for a layup and somebody clipped me and I hit the back of my head and I, and I couldn't play anymore. So Leo comes over and I, I'm like, coach, Leo, Leo, I, I, I got to play. You know, I got to play. This is the one time they've come to look. Leo was like, look, you don't even know how many fingers I got. Up. You're, you're done for the game. You're done for the game. And I'm like, Leo, you're killing me. You know, it's an AAU game. I usually play 25 plus minutes a game. I'm played less than a minute and I'm out. So anyway, you can, you can imagine my looks at the end of the bench in the whole game. I mean, I, I was really upset. Get back to my, my um, school. Uh, probably about three days later, I get, a, I get a letter. You know, it's got the letterhead, University of North Carolina. I'm like, what's this to tell me I ain't got no chance? Why are you sending me this? So I open it up and Coach Guthrie says, yeah, I, I came down to watch you. And I was really impressed in the way you warmed up. <laughs> he didn't have anything else to say. And basically, you wouldn't believe it. They offered me a scholarship. On this is how they offered me a scholarship to North Carolina. Wow. So I think they already did their homework. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. <laughs> Carl, what was, uh, do you have a good, as, as good a story as that? <laughs> no, I never, never, never. No, my, my, mine was uh, uh, nothing like that. Obviously, I went the junior college route. And um, I was... Uh, rated one of the top defensive guards in junior college and one of the better onboard defenders. And it was, there was five schools that I narrowed my um, choices down to University of Alabama, Wimp Sanderson, Clem Haskins at Minnesota, Norm Sloan at uh, University of Florida. Um, it was Clemson. Don't can't remember who the coach was. And then obviously Georgia tech and the, uh, the thing with Georgia Tech, what I didn't realize, they never took any junior college players because obviously being a top four-year school, and Steve would know this, they would never take junior college players. It always would be because they, they thought junior college players, uh, obviously you're there for a reason. You know, I, I was a Prop 48 student. Um, but those two years at junior college helped me to get on the map because I had no scholarship. I had like one offer, scholarship officer, scholarship offer as a freshman. So... Um, and that wasn't good. So junior college was really good for me and I, I made a name. So I went to my visits and Georgia Tech was the only visit that was real. Now, what I mean by that was is they didn't offer me anything. Um, always remember David Whitmore, uh, Dennis Scott and Brian Oliver, they came and picked me up in this beat up Mustang, this old beat up car. And uh, they came to pick me up and... Uh, they took me to, to dinner uh, with coach. We all went for dinner and then we went out. And the one thing they said to me, they said, if you come to Georgia Tech, you will be a yellow jacket for life. And I didn't know what that meant. You know, I, I didn't even know really what about division one, about the ACC and all that. I just wanted to play basketball. And, you know, meeting the guys, they, were, they seemed more genuine than everybody else. And then speaking to coach Kremens and uh, the coach Campwell, the one thing they kept preaching was when you finish, 
you will always be a yellow jacket. You'll be a yellow jacket for life. And that just resonated with me. But I, I didn't understand what it meant because I, you know, within the recruitment process, they're going to tell you what you what you what you want to hear. Obviously, my parents weren't involved with it. You know, they're all the way in England. So it was me dealing with a lot of it myself. But it was the best choice that I made going to Georgia Tech because, uh, as, as you said, Coach Clemens, uh, yeah, legendary coach, like a second father to me, and uh, we're still in uh, constant contact. I'll, I'll ask you first, Carl, uh, Carl, and then Steve, Steve next, but um, talk to me about his basketball philosophy. Um, I mean, obviously, he had some of those great teams, great offensive teams, um, but talk to me about some of the things that – you learn uh, from his coaching style, you know, what um, obviously, he, you know, he, he, he was an innovator of some of the stuff, especially, you know, from the outside, from the perimeter game, you know, he has some spread offense stuff. But what, what, what it was for me as a, as a player, you don't realize until you finish playing sure. that you take bits from each coach, from each coach. And the one thing that coach Kremens was great at, he would, cause he's a New York guy. He would go, and get the best player from New York City, the best guard, the best player, or Dennis Scott from, from the, the streets of Washington, D.C. And what he would always, he, and he was truthful and honest to players, because if you, if you remember, Georgia Tech would only run with, and Steve would know this, five, six, seven guys would get most of the minutes, because he would promise the All-American, he would say to Kenny, Kenny, you're coming in, I'm going to make you a pro, you're going you're gonna to play 35, 40 minutes a game, depending on if you get in foul trouble or you get tired, and the ball is yours. Same with Dennis Scott, 3D, 6'8", one of the, the best shooters ever in, in college basketball. But what I didn't know, the reason Coach Kremens took three junior college players, me, Mo Britton, and Johnny McNeil, was because the, his next class coming in was Kenny Anderson, Malcolm Mackey, Daryl Barnes, Alvano Newbill. So he had one of the, and there was another guy, another guy as well, but he had one of the best classes coming in that following year. But we didn't know that as junior college players. So we were thrown in at the deep end and we were only supposed to play that one year, that junior year. And then our senior years, you know, be put on the bench or transferred. So, but getting back to coach Kremen's philosophy, it was about being honest with the players, but it was about, his spread offense. It was all about the offense. It was all about letting players express themselves and be creative. So, you know, back then, if players made mistakes, the coaches would get on them. Players couldn't just go out there and freestyle and shoot. But what Coach Kremens did, he gave us a lot of freedom. Yes, we had offensive sets. We had a couple, but a lot of people thought that it was just a lot of one-on-one -on -one stuff. But we had, he loved perimeter players and he spread the floor and he let players express themselves from the three-point line. Yeah, one of the yeah. first. I, I did, just, Steve, before I come to you, um, Carl, I, I, in your mind, you think that Coach Kremens, if he was you know, running his program now, basically we would look at almost like Kentucky, Calipari. He'd be like unbelievable on the one-and-dones, and he would be like this open offense and you know, play to those strengths. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, because I think... Uh, for about six, seven years, uh, Georgia Tech would always have the um, freshman of the year. So the ACC uh, rookie of the year or freshman of the year. So, and then it was either 
that first or second year that player would go to the NBA. So you got the, the Stefan Marbers, you got the Shumpers, you got the Kenny Andersons. You know, there's a there's a long list of players that would be one and done or two years. So what coach would do is give them that platform because he would know the situations that they've come from. He they they need to make money for their families. So he was set up more for players that wanted to wanted to do one and two years, but then also come back and finish their degrees. And not I don't think too many schools were set up like that um, back then. Steve, obviously, um, you know North Carolina. I mean, you know Dean Smith one of the all-time great basketball coaches and not more so is that the fact that he you know was evolutionary in how the game was played you know in so many aspects um what what are some of the things that you know you you took from him um you know obviously as coaches we've all read the books and but you were there you were there you were right there getting every, all of these intricate details a freestyle offense I can tell you that <laughs> but uh, what, what I take from him is that he was able to construct great teams great teams I mean he always talked about teams he always talked about the team he's never really talked about the individual so much and he created this atmosphere within the program a kind of hierarchy where Seniors would play before freshmen. Freshmen had to wait their time. He, you know, he just created this, this program where you knew if you followed his lead and stuck to the script, we would win more games than we would lose every time. We weren't going to lose many games. Um, our teams were defensively uh, sound. We dictated what the other team did on uh, offensively. We knew what they were going to do, and we were able to shut them down offensively, uh, we always kind of pinpointed our attacks. I remember he was like, it goes in, and it goes in, and it comes out, then you can shoot. But it had to go in. We had the strength. So he was very calculated in the way he, he, would, he would go about winning games. But everybody believed, everybody believed in it. Um, nobody was able to get away with anything. doesn't matter who you were. You come into practice, he expects you to work. He expects the, 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 the best player on the team and the, the last player on the team to work at the same intensity, and he wouldn't accept anything else. So we all bought into that. And besides of having all that talent, I think he was able to nurture the talent. How many players you've seen, not so recently, but in my day, would go into to, to North Carolina, do a great job, probably win a championship, do well, but then just explode in the NBA? Just explode in the NBA and you say, oh, why you do that in college? Because coach didn't build, he didn't build a team for you in college. He, he built the team for the program. And that's what people respected about him. I mean, defensively, I thought he was a genius. I still use some of his stuff now. And you're talking about open offense. He created the, the four corners. Absolutely. So let's let's be real here. He created the four corners. Absolutely. Yeah. Which which is the open offense. Yeah. It's a little bit open and you like to see it, but the, the principles are the same. Uh, individuals are able to, uh, to to create their own their own destiny in those type of when you open the floor up. It's about one on one. So he did a lot of things. Again, I I was able to to see more of the defensive end because that's where I kind of excelled in for him. So you know, forcing people baseline traps, uh, 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 
of full court schemes. It gave every it gave everybody problems. So I, I I respect the guy. He put a lot of of work. He had a great team around him. Uh, but the thing is, he always put the team above I. That's what I saw. Always put the team above I. And I think he got a lot of great, great, fantastic, all you know, old world, all of fame players to buy into that. Um, I want to ask both of you, just this is just a side question. I've got two real kind of general basketball, British basketball questions. Why do you think that two of the greatest players that have ever played in our country um, started and excelled at the defensive end? You know, you became great offensive players when you became professionals, but you dedicate yourself to be great defensive players. Why do you think that that's not, you know, is it is that where we are with the game in, in, in this day? You know, why don't we have some younger players thinking that way now? Or is it just the fact that every score, we must score the basketball in this day and age? I think from, from my point of view, you're talking about when I was in college. I'm talking, yeah. I mean, obviously, when so, you even... So when, so, so when, and it's like what Steve said, you've got a structure. So you've got freshmen, sophomores, juniors and seniors. And when I came on our team, we had Kenny Anderson, who was at the, the top player, top rated player coming in as a freshman. We had Dennis Scott, one of the top players in college basketball. And also you had senior in Brian Oliver. So as a coach, now I can look back. There's not enough balls for five people to score. Dennis Scott averaged nearly, uh, nearly 30 points. Brian and Kenny averaged 20 plus points. That's, that, that's close to 70 points in a game. So the other players need to play their role. Johnny McNeil, uh, he, played, he played the four. And he, his job was to rebound, play defense, put the ball back. Then we had Malcolm Mackey, who was an All-American coming in as a freshman. He had a little bit more leeway. You know, he could, he could score around a basket. But then I came in for him and played nearly 30 minutes a game. And my job for me to play was penetrate, kick, but be that dog on defense. And what that did, that helped Kenny Anderson to score. I didn't get any of his NBA money because I played the defense on the <laughs> toughest cards, but and and that that's why. So it wasn't that we couldn't score, but you you if to play at that level, you've got to buy into the coach's philosophy. But but KB, that's my point. I'm trying to make is um, you 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 know we can talk about whether defense is you know nurture nature all of it. You know were mm. were you made or did you make yourself? I'm t saying that both of you, I made myself. Uh, you yeah. made yourself and you, yes, of course. You, so, but my, my point I'm trying to make is what, why are we, why are we, do we not have one of those younger players now, you know, seeing, saying to themselves that I'm going to be a lockdown defender and expand my game as I go along. It, it's not fashionable anymore. What, what everybody wants to do, they want to be like, it's all changed now. They want to be like the Steph Curry's, you know, the Kevin Durant's, People, don't get me wrong, people still play defense, but you get paid to score. So, but if you are, if you can home your craft and be a specialist, you can still make money, but you're still going to be able to score. Steve? I kind of, I kind of understand where, where Carl's going with that, but I, I look at it a little bit slightly differently. I averaged 30 points a game in high school. 30 points again, that's not easy. You know, that's no easy feat. And then you go to college and then you see the standard of, of, of player. 
And obviously at North Carolina, we, we had 13 All-Americans on the bench. Everybody was an All-American. And uh, everybody wanted to score 30 points a game. Don't get me wrong. Everybody wanted to score. But at the end of the day, you had to buy into a philosophy of how do you fit into that team, Coach Smith's team? How do you fit in there right here, right now? Uh, for me, that was defensively. That's how I was able to contribute to the team. That's why I was able for Coach to, to rely on me to put me in the game. Then once you get that label, it just kind of follow, it just kind of follows you. It just kind of follows you and, and, and then you take pride in it. I think every young player probably can play defense if they want to. But obviously you get the rewards and the highlights for playing offense. Uh, I don't think in the modern game you can you, you can isolate yourself and just say, I just want to play defense. You have to be able to play both ends of the floor. But at the end of the day, you're going to be more of a of an asset if you can lock somebody down, right? And you can play the schemes on defense. The coach is going to probably say, yes, you'll miss some, you'll some shots. Some days you'll be good, some days you'll be bad. But there's one, there's one end of the floor which should not change, and that's defensively. And I think that's what the young players need to probably look at. Not to, I want to be a specialist, just that, no, I need to be reliable on defense. I don't need to be a, a weak link in the chain. And if you do that, then I'm sure the coaches will allow you to express yourself offensively. But what you can't be is wanting to shoot 100 shots and then you come down, your man walks in for a layup or you miss an assignment or you don't box out or you don't hustle or you don't rotate. These things is what highlights uh, you getting out, you know, getting off the court. So I look at it a little bit different. Um, Steve, you, you, you obviously then, you know, were the, one of the first, if not the first, to to play in the NBA as a British player, um, you know, when you went to the Lakers. I mean, just very quickly talk about, um, you know, Pat Pat Riley and 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 that Lakers, you know, organization and team. I mean, what were some of the things you you've gone from this extreme controlled environment and now you're here and you're in this, you know, incredible other system. You know, talk just talk a little bit about that. First of all, I was, I was, I was in, in, in an environment with all my idols. That's probably what killed me. I used to watch those guys playing under the covers in high school when the lights were supposed to be out. And I was watching Showtime, uh, Magic, James, Byron, and those guys. So when I, when, when I went there, I, I was a little bit in awe, but I kind of reverted back to, to North Carolina. I said, you know what? If I'm going to make this team, I don't think I'm going to be the one shooting all the basketballs, am I? So... Let me isolate a few of these guys and go to work on them defensively. And that's pretty much what I did. And at that time in, in Showtime's era, I think they were on a downslope probably at that time. They reached their peak. So it wasn't really about the intensity in training. It was more about video analysis, uh, looking at the, their stats, um, a lot of psychological work. Uh, Pat Riley was excellent in that. He was an excellent motivator. But these guys already had their resume. I mean, for me, it was their professionalism. That's what I learned. Mm. I mean, I used to I used to get mad when I didn't play. I know it sounds strange, but I always get mad when I don't play. It doesn't matter who, what level. So I'm sitting there. I remember on the bench getting mad. And, uh, you know, James comes off and he goes, what's your problem? I was like, James, I didn't come here to sit on the bench. He starts laughing. He's like, what are you talking about? He goes, listen, if you, if you want to stay in this league, you've got to develop your game you got to develop your offensive game. Everybody knows you have the heart. 
you have the heart of a lion. You can play defense. But this is the next level up. Everybody has the heart of a lion. You've got to separate yourself. And you've got to learn your offense. So what he used to do with me is when I didn't play, which is most games, I'd have to do 40 minutes on the treadmill or 40 minutes running around the track, wherever it was. Then he would say, you need to go to the gym and shoot you two, 300 shots. So he taught me about the professionalism of the game and always trying to improve. Some You can always tell the players who um, will be Hall of Famers because every year they get better, right? You look at the NBA, every year they get better. Then you see the other ones get into the league and that's it. They're done. It's over. They don't put any, t- they don't put any work in. So the Lakers showed me that. I mean, the aura around them when we used to show up to town was, was amazing. It was just a first-class organization. Um, they were the first ones to have their own private jets. Uh, no one even heard about that before. And we were traveling on private planes. So just having that experience and, and seeing those guys, even though it was at the end of their career, it, it was something that I could never, never replace. Awesome. Carl, uh, let's let's move it along and let's talk both about your professional careers, but let's let's not talk just about, you know, th- pick a couple of some of the coaches that you played for. Um, you had, you know, extremely varied career as as, as Steve has, um, you know, and some of the coaches that, you know, that you actually took some things from, um, you know, almost surprisingly at times as well. Well, there's two two coaches. Um, first one is is uh, definitely Coach Kevin Cadle. Uh, rest, you know, God rest his soul. Um, what he taught me was he he taught me about how to be a better person and a better man. You didn't realize it at the time, and about being being professional and putting in the hard work and dedication. And what he also also taught me taught me was was how to win, how to win in a in a team environment. So. And not being selfish, because when you when you when you get to the pros, you've got to get stats to get paid for the next year and to find your next job or to get that two year deal or to try and win trophies. So you're constantly looking to put stats on the board and trying to help the team win. And the second coach who helped my offensive game tremendously uh, was uh, Coach Billy Mims. He brought in a a whole new style uh, to the Leopards uh, and. Um, you know, I think we was one of the highest scoring teams every year. Um, just running gun, myself, Ronnie Baker, Robert Youngblood. And that was some uh, some of the most exciting basketball I've ever played. And then obviously played with them again when we won championships at Leicester. So two different contrasting coaches, but they were two great coaches that were great for the BBL. I played for both of them at different times, but their competitive nature against each other with the two London teams that's when basketball was at its pinnacle. And obviously you was around as well, but the way they challenged each other on and off the court, I've seen them get into altercations and that was the beauty of, uh, of those two coaches, but they were two, two very good coaches, two great coaches in their own right. But yeah, Billy Mims and definitely coach Kevin Cadle. You think just uh, very quickly, do you think that, do you think that Billy was ahead of his time in some of the things that he was doing? I think he, I, I, what, what Billy did, and, and it's only when I look back and I've become a coach, is he made you believe that you was better than what you was. Mm. He made me believe I could hit every shot. He made, he instilled in us as a team that we could do anything we put our minds to. And that was what Billy Mims was great at. 
I told people this story. We had 18 offenses with Billy Mims. And for me as a player, I wasn't good at reading playbooks. It was all in my mind. So I could process it by, once I seen it on the floor a couple of times, all those 18 plays were in my head, I was a point guard. But within those 18 plays, there was about three, four, five, six, seven variations. Sure. One up, sure. one down, one across. Eight high, eight low, eight across. Eight. So there were so many variations within that. So Billy Mims, I feel, was, was ahead of his time with his running, off, his philosophy was, we're going to outscore you. You score 100, we're going to score 102. And that's how he always played. So that, that was great. Steve, you you had uh, you know like like Carl you know extremely varied, but you you obviously spent quite a lot of time in in Europe as well. Um, talk to, talk to me a little bit about some of those co you know the the coaches that influenced uh, mostly you know mostly of you. Well, no disrespect to all of them, but I had two of the best in the business. So anything after that really <laughs> really wasn't cutting the mustard. But <laughs> we can we can go there. Um, I think Greg Bunio uh, of Villabon um, gave me my my opportunity to play as a foreigner uh, in France, which at the time only Americans imports usually got that label. To be that's when you had two foreign players and that was it. Uh, Greg Bunio took a chance on me. Uh, I went went to Villabon as a young team. Um, we had a, a hefty preseason. Uh, but what this guy did for me, he worked alongside me to, he let me see the, the, the beauty of partnership with a player to work with a player and building a team. Cause he was a young coach and he came to me, he goes, you know, you've played a lot of places. You've been with these guys. What do you think we need to build the foundation on? You know, obviously I said defense, I said defense. I said, you're going in with a young team. Your budget's not great. Um, we need to build from the bottom up, build our defense. And we were we worked together um, the whole season, putting in the schemes. He would ask me about the schemes defensively. He didn't ask me anything about offense for some reason, though. But for defense, he, you know, we had the same type of rotation. You know, forcing the ba uh, the ball to the baseline, trapping it, forcing the team to to throw it over the heads, and we'll get it. And he really he really wanted to know um, what we did at Carolina in terms of defensively. So I respected him. And obviously, once the coach buys you in like that, now you're going to run through a brick wall for him, ain't you? So, you know, you know, reflecting now, I mean, I had one of my best seasons there. No one knew about me. Uh, we came in the top half of the league with, with, a, with a low budget team and everybody was talking about it. So I still talk to him there. He's come to a few of my camps and I just respected the, the, the fact that he came to me as a man and said, you know, you've got some knowledge. I want it. Uh, can we share it with each other? And that's what happened. So I respected him. And then you go down the line and I was trying to think of the names as Carl was talking. I was like, I've been through too many coaches, Tony G. So I'm like, I've been through a lot of coaches. I mean, you were one of them for a short time. And, you know, you, you also, you know, for me, you also facilitated me as a, as, as a man and as a player. You allowed me to be a part of that. You allowed me to play. And I think that's important. But you talk about Kevin Cato. I think, you know, besides his, his, his coaching attributes, I think he, told, he taught me about the social outcomes of basketball. Social outcomes of basketball. We don't really mention that. But he was, he was very avid about that and what, and what we represented as black men. 
uh, mm-hmm. on our teams and what we had to to show, especially when he coached the, the national team. Um, obviously, Kader was a great coach in his own mind, but yeah, if I've got four aces on a on a poker table, I'm gonna be pretty good too. But you know, he did he did set us up to win. He did so. do that. Let's let's be honest. He took the play. He took the racehorses. And then he and then he let them loose, <laughs> and then he would let them loose on on the team. So he he taught me about you know what making sure you got the best players. <laughs> he told me that <laughs> it's it's a it's a funny story, you know, Carl talking about that. You know, I was around at that time, and uh, yeah. you know when I was uh, on, on Kevin's last year, we were sitting in the office, and I I had found out that I was going to go to Iceland to start you know professional coaching. And, you know, I, I, I said to him, you know, you know, Karen, can you just give me, you know, a, a piece of advice? And he just said, recruit, recruit, recruit. He said, <laughs> he said, it doesn't matter what, what, you know, X's and O's. He said, if you haven't got the players, you're never going to win. So, yeah. you know, and he's absolutely right. I mean, uh, none of us have won without the, the best players. So, you know, it's a great, There's great. Some other people I'd like to mention, I think it's important. Yeah. Nick Nurse. Uh, I was had the opportunities big time now, but uh, Nick Nurse was another one. Nick Nurse would allow you to play. Nick would would allow you to figure it out. Sometimes you let the whole team figure it out, and more than likely we would because we saw that the coach had confidence in us to figure things out. Right. I mean, Nick would call you know call Tame come over you know what do you think about what we should do? I may have something to say. He may go to another play. What do you do? And then he. Then he'll think it all through and he'll come back and say, all right, we're going to do this. And most of the time, even if he doesn't uh, take your advice, you're still going to believe in it. But he said, well, he's asked my opinion. It doesn't mean he has to use it, but he's asked. I mean, practices were, were fun to be in. And uh, he could always draw a play up. I give him that. He could always draw a play up. Yeah. And uh, so I respect him for what he's done in his journey. I mean, the other guy who I did learn a lot from in terms of coaching, I thought, kind of took me to whatever level I am, was, uh, I think it was Ron Abelglin. Abelglin. Uh, I think he was from Weber State. Weber State well, yeah. this guy taught me, which probably everybody knows already, or they use it or they don't use it, but this guy taught me about drawing up quick plays. He taught me, he had so many backdoor dunk plays, it was unbelievable. We're coming to a timeout, this guy just draws something up and it would work every time. Obviously we had the tools and you know, on the team to, to finish the plays, but I was amazed. I was like, when he calls a timeout, he knows exactly what he wants out of this timeout. He doesn't mess about. He'll come in, he'll say, bang, bing, bang, bosh, this is what we're doing. We go out there, boom, we get basket. And that can change the momentum of a game. I, that can change the momentum. So he taught me to, to I, value. I, I also can think. You hear me? He I taught me to value the timeouts. That makes sense. To value your timeout and use it wisely. That's a great point, Steve. But on top of that, I think what that does to players and you guys can talk from both angles is it, it, when a player sees that the play works, it gives even more confidence to the, to the coach. So if the coach makes a uh, substitution and you're not a hundred percent sure, you know, you, you're, you're, you're bought into that because you're already, you know, he's already got something in the bank. Um, and there's that kind of, you know, more connection, that ability to believe in each other. So coach believes in the player, player believes in the coach. I mean, that's really important. Um, no, 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 I agree. I, no, I agree with that. Totally. I mean, even though him and uh, me and run has some run-ins, but I always have run-ins with coaches. I was just impressed of, of what he had upstairs. 
Because, you know, usually somebody will have a, a play, you know, and you run it a million times. And the other coach, you know what they're going to run. You know when they come out. Yeah, he's gonna... This guy would come up with something new every time. Yeah. A little, Just a little twist. I, I, I respected that. Um, all my coaches, um, well, not all of them. I won't go there. Not all of them because I had quite a few. But all of them, I always tried to learn something from a coach. So, a coach has some quality, some something that you can take from it. I mean, I've always been, even since college, the coach on the floor. I've always been that conduit to, to the coach. He's always trusted me. So I've always felt like I need to be learning all the time to try to Im improve my, my, my understanding of the game. I'll never fully understand the game, but I want to have the tools. So if any situation happens, I kind of know how to deal with it. It may not work, but you know how to deal with it. Paul, um, you know, you're, you're, in your, you're in your playing career. You're coming towards the end of your playing career. Are you at any time starting to think, you know, that coaching, I can get into coaching now? Um, was, there, was there a time where you were saying, you know, I, I can actually translate a lot of my experience into coaching? Uh, Tony, that's a great question. I think it's, it's like what Steve said. Being a point guard um, through high school, college, working with different coaches, working within different systems and playing the game and loving the game, you, you, you don't really know what coaching is. You think you do. Now, coming to the end of my career, I had Billy Mims again at Leicester. And one thing Billy would do he would let me st start practice because Billy had a lot of things that he did off the court and he would call, as you know. So what he would do, he'd call me up half an hour before practice call. I'm going to be about half an hour late. I'm doing this assembly. So I said, no problem. He said, run this. I said, no problem. So I would end up taking the first half hour, 40 minutes of practice anyway. So, so for me, being I, I was doing a little bit of coaching, but then also as the point guard, Back then, the point guard had more of a role as a coach on the floor. It's not like today. So um, I, I was already coaching, but when I finished playing, I realized I had no clue about coaching because it's one of the most isolating jo isolated jobs when you've been a professional and then you see it from the other side, how much of a problem I was to coaches with my attitude, not playing on the court, but with my mannerisms and how I was. So to your question, yes, I thought I could transfer into coaching, but when I did, it was nothing that I thought it was. It was a big shell shock. Steve? Yeah, um, coaching. Like I said, I always felt like I was a coach on the floor. I mean, the coach is always... Come on, Tony, you know that you, you played with me, so you know. I would always lead the, the players on the floor. I would always try to translate what the coach wants uh, to the players, maybe not in a nice way, but, you know, it, it gets across. And I was always a leader. But I never thought about, never really thought about coaching um, until, yeah, the end of my career. And obviously you say, what are you going to do next? You can, you know, maybe jump into a, a whole new different field of work, a different sector. But I felt love for the game. And I said, there's so many young people out there needs to have my journey, need to experience my journey. And how can I give back? How can I give back? Um, I said, there's one way to give back is to probably do some coaching to start a club. So I started to think about that. 
Um, in the beginning, you think uh, anybody can coach. It's easy. You know what I mean? You're like, I can do this. And then you realize the, the complexity of it and the nuances involved in actually delivering what it says on the tin. So it's, it's a long journey, isn't it, coaching? It's a long journey, and you, and you just want the opportunities to keep investing in it. So I was able to start a club and try to put some of the stuff that I learned in practice. And obviously, uh, I got mud in my face in the beginning <laughs> because, you know, I came from, from a, a professional background of basketball and you get into the, into the community with some kids and you're trying to, to run your sessions like you're at North Carolina. <laughs> and, it's just not, and it's just not going the way you plan, right? And you're asking the kids to do things which they're looking at you like, well, I'd love to be able to do that, but I just can't. So I had to, my expectations had to drop and I had to learn to adapt to where I was. And that was my journey in the beginning. So, you know, I love coaching. Uh, I've done it uh, at all different levels, probably not long enough. And I still believe that my foundations are true uh, in terms of what I learned over the years. And uh, it's kind of uh, a hybrid of North Carolina, Lakers, and that European experience. It's all just mundled together into, into kind of a philosophy of winning. But the foundations of it all never changes for me. It's defense. You know that. I always believe in defense. So defense you, wins championships. You, you're already asking me that. that uh, you already answered the, the, the next question, which is, you know, what are your core values as a coach and that philosophy? So you've answered that, Steve, you know, in a, in a real, really important way. Um, Carl, you know, what about for yourself as well? Did you... Did you change, you know, because there are players that, you know, became different, different coach with a different coaching style to actually how they played? I think, I think um, over my coaching journey, I have changed uh, over the past, I'd say three years after, you know, doing my level four, but my, my coaching philosophy was, would start with what helped me with defense because you want you want players that are going to fight for you. Everybody can play defense. They've they've just got to want to do it. And you've got to teach them the philosophy of defense. You know the shell drill. You know how you close out. You know staying low in stance. It, it sounds basic, but it's just drilling and drilling and showing players. Look, if you give me this on the defensive end, on the offense, play free. Because for me, if we can get stops you know, we can score on the other end. So, so for me, it was always the defense, but on the offensive end is, you know, play free, you know, not too much structure, let the guys play, but give it to me on the defense. Right. That's really good stuff. Um, I want to, I've got to ask this question to both of you. Um, two of the greatest players ever. And not involved in the professional game, you know, at the highest levels um, of, of our game. I mean, circumstance or just lack of, you know, correct opportunities? I mean, I, I'll go first with that one. I think uh, when I, it's, it goes back to the previous question, <clears throat> excuse me, you asked about, um, did I want to be a coach? Now, when I finished playing with Leicester, I did coach, I think, for one or two seasons. But I, if I'm honest, I wasn't, there, you know, the support wasn't there. 
I wasn't cut out to be a professional coach. Uh, the structure wasn't there. And, and more so myself mentally. I didn't have the coaching background. Uh, like I said, I felt isolated because once you, you, you go through that tr transition from a player to a coach, and now I'm old and I speak to other players that are finishing to, to become coaches and I speak with them, I say, look, it's a lonely journey. And then they'll come back to me a year later and they'll say, do you know what? Now I'm coaching, the players don't want to know me. It's like you're, if you win, it's fine. When you lose, you're all by yourself. It's always the coach's fault. It's a, I said, you've just got to get used to that. That's part and parcel of coaching. You've got to be mental. You're, you've got to have mental resilience. You've got to be mentally tough and you've got to support your players. Whatever your players say or do, you've got to be that conduit. You've got to help your players. You've got to get them to play as a family and as a team. So um, going back to me becoming a coach uh, in the beginning, I think now I'm better cut out as a coach. And the reason I'm not coaching professionally, A, for me, the BBL is a closed shop. You got, you'll have the same coaches every year. There, there's to keep continuity. It's a closed shop, but also... Um, financially, you, you know, you, you, you couldn't make a living just coaching and doing all those hours. For me, it, it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. It's like what Steve said previously. I started my club when I was finishing my professional career at 37 years old. I went back to the community. The community wanted me to start something up for our young kids in, in the inner city. Because as a black youngster on the street, that you know, there's not much prospects but drugs, gang violence and things like that. So starting up a project uh, through Cave in the community and the Warriors was a simple project to get youngsters off the street, give them hope. And um, one thing that I wanted to do was uh, take a player from the estates and streets to create an international elite. And that's what I wrote down. I wanted to, can I take some players from the streets and create them into international elite players like a Raphael Thomas Edwards, like a... Uh, Elliot's sentence, like a Kareem Queeley. And it, it, you, they, you only get those players every generation, but they've got to buy into your story because it's not easy. You know, you've got to go out and shoot on the ball courts in the rain at 12 at night, what those guys have done. You've got to leave the country and go over to Real Madrid at 14 years old. And it's a rocky road. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an easy ride. So for me, the reason, and I don't regret not coaching professionally in the BBL, but I am a professional coach because when I coach, whether it's beginners, intermediate, advanced, whether it's the national team, I make sure I'm as professional as possible and I support the players within that program to get to where they need to get to. So the short, the shorts of it is not enough money, as you would know, Tony, and there's too much downtime because if you don't win and you rely on the players, as coach Kevin Cato said, you won't have a job and I need to pay my bills. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> um, yeah, some of that stuff resonates with Carl's saying, but to me, it's just lack of opportunity, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, if I get an opportunity, I take it. Uh, and I'm usually successful when it comes to basketball, so I don't ever doubt my ability. Um, I've had opportunities to coach overseas, but at the time of my career, when I when I stopped i had a family a young family so i wanted to 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 kind of to make some routes to set up i mean traveling for 17 years all over europe and, and states you know it's not good for family life so i took that path when i was in england i had an opportunity to coach in the bbl and i did all right without you know any finance so it's just a lack of opportunity 
Um, the BBL is there. Um, there's only a few teams I think could really match the ambition of what you want to do. Uh, I'm not about just ticking things over. I'm about winning. You know that. I'm about championships. So just getting things ticking over. And I did it for a year. I'm like, yeah, it's fun, but, you know, it's not really going to, it's not really going to get your hairs standing on end, is it? Just ticking over and surviving. So it's a lack of opportunity. Uh, I see the BBL are doing some things. I think Division One um, have have improved, especially the coaching side of things. But obviously there's no finance behind that. And the team that has the finance wins. Uh, you know that, I know that, any basketball person knows what's going on. So it's a lack of opportunity. We've got to increase those opportunities for our coaches, not just me, but there's other coaches out there have the ability. But as Carl said, you can't expect them to quit their jobs for something uh, that's not going to replace that. And uh, if we can create more opportunities, more professional um, co coaching situations, I think it's going to be better for the game. I think in the academy, the EABL and the DICE program, we've been able to do that, create more type of professional coaches. Now we just have to translate that into the professional game. Mm. I've got, a, I've got some questions, very quick ones after that for that. But let's just um, ask you about um, your own experiences, uh, you know, at the highest levels in Europe, you know, both as underage, as underage coaches. I mean, what, what did you take from those experiences of being head coaches of those programs and um, being successful, um, nurturing players, you know, really high level players, you know, to another level? Um, Carl, what 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 your what are the things that you gained from that? From those wow, no, no great question. I think when you go into coaching national teams, and uh, what, one of the reasons I went into coaching national teams was was uh, because there wasn't no diversity. I didn't see any any black coaches, and there was a, a parent, one of our parents that uh, was from a club, went to an East Midlands practice, and she was a white woman. Have uh, some was dual heritage. And she says, Carl, she said, all the coaches were white men. No, nothing to do with that, Carl, but that's not reflecting what my son should see. And I, and when she said that, it didn't, I, it didn't resonate. It, 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 I didn't realize that, you know, somebody would think like that as a parent. So I said to myself, look, let me apply. So I applied because obviously people say, oh, you, you don't get a job because you don't apply. So I said, let me apply. And I had an interview with, uh, I'll never forget, um, Mark Clark and uh, Peter Scantlebury. And um, they didn't think my interview would go as well as it did. And one of the things was Simon Fisher was the head coach. And they said, would you mind being his assistant? I said, I'd love to be his assistant. I said, his father coached me. I, would, I wouldn't, you know, there's no other person that I would like to assist. And I learned so much from Simon Fisher as an assistant coach and not to embarrass uh, Mr. Steve Bucknell, but also uh, under Steve's tutelage as well uh, as a coach, you know, both different styles and they let me be myself and bring my flavor to, to the coaching style. But the end result was, was a, it was about winning. They both wanted to win, but it's about as a head coach, having that true support from your assistant coach or your head coach to know this guy's got my back. And if anything happens to me, he can put into play what I want to put into play. So, um, so yeah, that's it. Steve. Um, the reason why I got into to national team coaching was, 
I had a young man. Um, I guess I can say his name, but then it might reveal other things. But anyway, I had a young man who I felt uh, had had all the tools necessary uh, to be a GB player, a Nationals team player. Um, it was a younger age group. Uh, at that time, we didn't have our in infrastructure uh, structure in place, but they had these little tryouts, these little tryouts in London. So I found out when one was, uh, I think Carl was assistant coach. That's why I just gave it away now. But anyway, I took this young man to a training <laughs> and I watched the training and I watched the training session and I, and, I, and I knew what I had with this young kid. You know, this was a diamond in the rough. Any, anybody with a nose on their face could see that. So after the session, I said, hello, how, how do you do? Well, one of the assistant coaches or the staff who was running it was like, oh, no, you know, nothing special. Didn't, didn't really impress. And that just, you know, as a, as a basketball guy, I'm like, what? I've just watched the practice and I've watched the players here. And, okay, he's not refined as the other ones, but you can't see what I can see? Um, that this kid has an opportunity, has got all the tools? Um, so anyway, I was frustrated. I said, all right, there's no use to get frustrated. Let's do something about it. That's what I usually do. And so uh, I applied I applied for, for a couple jobs. Uh, the GB uh, 20s, I think it was 20s. And uh, for some reason, I won't even go into that. I uh, didn't get that. And then, I, and then I was asked to do the, the 18s, to apply for the 18. I said, no, no, Matt, I get to coach the kid I wanted anyway, because he's coming up soon. So I went to the 18s, um, applied for that. Um, they gave me the job. Um, they had a lot of restrictions around me. Uh, I don't know why, when, when I felt like my resume is probably better than everybody that's talking to me. But anyway, that's another thing. <laughs> uh, but they had a lot of restrictions around and who you could bring and who you couldn't bring. And I said, fair enough. I just want to coach. So they said, would you like Alan, Alan Keane? Yeah, Alan Keane is great. So that was our, our first tour on the 18s. And I went there and I said, you know what? I want to see if we can actually compete. Could our players compete against these Europeans? I've never really seen it before up close. So I want to see that. And secondly, I want to see if all this talk about these great coaches they got, I want to see if it's true because I want to go against them. So we went there and I learned two things. I learned our players could definitely play against theirs. Definitely. We had the tools. We had the athletic ability. Um, there's some, there was some missing links. You know that. You've seen it. But we definitely could, could stack up against anybody. And that was just Division B. So we could stack up against anybody. And the second thing is, I didn't really see any, anything special about their coaches, if you really want to be honest. They just had better players and, and better resources, and they were able to, to have the players for longer. That was the difference. Yeah. That was the difference to me. So I was like, hold up a second here. <laughs> you know, you know me, I'm thinking, I need to come back and do this again because I think I can take you guys. Uh, with the team we got, and Carl had a great team. Um, I think they won the bronze medal. Great young group. Yeah, and I already awesome. targeted that. I targeted that group from the very beginning. I'm like, if I can get that group with my kid that I've gotten a couple more, I think we can do some things. We can be successful here. And uh, obviously the next year, Alan went, uh, Carl came up. I really wanted Carl because he knew all those players in that group. And I said, I've got to have somebody who knows all these players because, you know, sometimes, you know, the way I coach may be a, a, a little bit robust. So we need to have Carl there just to smooth things out. Um, so Carl came in. We took that group, six of the players. 
And it was a two-year program for me because I knew they had to play in Division A. I said, there's one thing getting to Division, Division A, but now you've got to stay in Division A. Absolutely. And that was the whole plan. I told Carl, this is the plan. We take this younger group. they got eight players who will be available next year. We, uh, you know, get a semifinal of bronze. We got a bronze. And I was disappointed to get that. But it was never about that year. It was the year after we went to Division 8. And I said, let me see. Because everybody tells me, you know, how great these coaches are, how great these players are. And it was the same thing in Division B. Our players could play against them. And the coaching wasn't that great. And, and, and that's when I knew we need to work. We need to do some work here in England. Because we stack up against these teams. And since then, I mean, I've moved on and done some other things. But the results tell you the same thing. Sure. Uh, our 18s are in Division A, our 20s are in Division A, and we stack up and our coaches are good enough. Yeah. What we have to do now is take it from that quarterfinal level and get into the middle level where you're getting medals. Uh, so, yeah, that's my that's kind of my coaching at national teams where it just revealed a lot about uh, English and British basketball players and also this thing where we don't think we can coach a lot of our coaches. Uh, and, I, and I'm here to tell you that's not the case. And I'm sure that tone, you went through that as a, 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 an Englishman trying to coach overseas. Yeah, a lot. And lost a lot, lost a number of jobs just because I was English. So that was, yeah. you know, against guys that didn't have half the resume. So, yeah, I know exactly what, what you're saying. Um, I got a couple of quick questions. Um, one is uh, on shooting. You know, we talk about shooting now. I, you know, it's obviously... You, arguably the most important fundamental skill. It's probably the skill that our country has the most problems with. And considering the game is now built around the three point line, why do you think that, you know, back when you played, we had better shooters than what we do now? Is it simply we're not teaching the fundamentals? The, the players are not putting in the amount of reps? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Let's talk to the expert, Carl. You can answer it first. <laughs> I'm the expert. Okay. Um, that's a great question. I think now, I mean, I think back then, it's a different, it's hard to compare because it's obviously it's different eras and we, we played a different style and we didn't shoot as much threes. You know, we, we would drive to the basket, you'd pull up for your 12, 15 foot jump shot. You know, on Coach Billy Mims's team, I think we shot the most threes. So, Let's say if I was playing, I would shoot 15 threes in a game. I may make five or six. If I was hot, I may make eight. So, but then a lot of teams wouldn't do that. So I think now what youngsters are doing is they're just coming in the gym and it's start, instead of going back to the basic fundamentals, is starting in close. Everybody's starting right back out on the three-point line. Everybody wants to start right on the three-point line. So it's about the mechanics. It's about, it's about us trying to teach our youngsters how male and female, the basic fundamentals, starting with the base, following all the way through. But it's about them taking their time and then putting in the work away from the coach. Because I think a lot of players and parents feel it's the coach that's going to make my son or daughter the better shooter. Yeah, we help, but they've got to put in the extra reps and they've got to put in the extra work. And I think that's what's missing now is that extra work ethic and having that court time to do that. Steve? Yeah, good points. I can't 
really you know, really disagree. My, my, my thing is, uh, you've got to blame the coaches. Uh, we've got to take the, the first line. <laughs> you know, we got to get out there and take and take our hits with everybody else, not just the players. So I know my story. My story is I was six foot six and I was only taught to play inside over here. I was only taught to play inside. Nobody taught me about dribbling. Nobody told me about shooting. It's only when I went to America and went to that next level, you realize I am not a big man. I am a God. So let's take it back to England. It's the same thing. You get a kid who may be able to go all the way through, because I'm talking about talent here. You know, I'm not, we're not talking about kids who just want no. to play for fun. Yeah. We're talking about talent. The talent comes in. The talent can score for you by, what is the easiest way for them to score? Get to the basket, mm. right? Get to the basket, get a rebound. Let's run, let's run. You know, so if I'm a coach and I know I can win that way, sometimes my focus shifts and it all it's all about that, isn't it? It's all about that. Let's not develop the player. Let's develop my team so my team can win. So that's the first thing. You know, coaches have to look at, you know what? Maybe we're here to develop players. Maybe it's not just about the winning, which means now you've got to go back to the drawing board with some of these players and mm. teach them how to shoot. Put the time in. Then the next step to me is having the facilities, having the availability for the kids to go into the gym and shoot. Uh, not that you go to the gym, it costs me 25 pounds to shoot, but I want to shoot for <laughs> half an hour, you know? So how are you going to get good shooters when it, every time they shoot a couple hundred shots, they got to pay 25 pounds to get access to the gym. So there's, there's many layers to this. Uh, there's not one thing you can pinpoint, but for me, the first thing is the coaches. The mindset has to change. I've seen many coaches in games they come in, they pound, they pound, they pound the ball inside. Or, or they have players just throwing up shots. I'm like, no, let's, let's, let's look, let's take our time here. Let's set the guys up to have good shots, coming off screens, taking the open shot, and applaud that, right? When they do that, applaud that. If a guy just comes down and, and throws up a three, do not applaud that. Do, do, do not reward that. Uh, now, I'm going to put those this to you both. Um, that's a great point. Um, but I'm, you know, we both, we all watch the NBA, you know, to death and stuff. Um, analytically, you know, and this worries the hell out of me, mainly for British basketball. The game tells you that now the analytics tell you that the transition pull up free one, yeah. you know, one, you know, uh, five on one is better, is better than, than going in for two on one on a layup. Um, and it's and it and and we're seeing this day in day out in the NBA, and so now we got kids in our leagues thinking they can take a pull up three when it's a two on one fast break. But yeah, Tony, just, said, I, just let me yeah. just let me let me get in first this time because I I love to talk about this stuff because analytics you can you can you can skew those stats to to make to, they can say anything. The first thing is that's the NBA, right? That's the top of the game. We're talking about the bottom of the game. We're not talking about the top of the game. Those guys have earned the right to do that. They've gone through a journey. Uh, we're not. We're 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 not going to skip levels and try to shoot. You know, one on five threes because we see somebody in the NBA does it. You've got to work your way into that. That's that's my argument for that one. Uh, and when they get to that level, they can pull up one on six. It doesn't matter. But first of all, you got to get there. Yeah, I think uh, I have to dis disagree uh, slightly on that. The way 
you know, I can go back to when we played with Billy Mims. We'd come, we'd come down and shoot and shoot the three, and it was applauded because you don't want to give your you want to give your players confidence to take that shot because that's that's just a part of the game. So then they come back and play defense. But with our getting back to the point is with the youngsters now, like I said, when they come into the gym, th there's this whole shift in in coaching. You know, people say player centered and you know, however you want to yeah, call it. But yeah, so but but the, the the thing is a player, you have to allow a player to express themselves. And now with a lot of coaching is it is not to restrict players. So the way players see the game going now, all players, whether you're six, six, seven foot, has to be able to shoot a shoot a 15-foot jump shot or a three-point shot to stretch the floor. So from a young age, everybody is looking at the Steph Curry's or looking at any Euro League players. It's just how the NBA is. The NBA is what 99.9% .9 of people people watch. But for me to do with the analytics, for me, there's two types of coaches. You've got the analytic coaches and the coaches that have come from the hardwood. So you can have that debate regarding analytics. For me, the key thing is, is that even though you're shooting up all those threes, you've still got to have a very good defensive team to win championships. And that's what it's about. So getting back to the point of our youngsters shooting the three, why are we focusing on our shooting as national teams? Why don't we just focus on our strengths, which is our left, our athleticism, our rebounding. We're not going to get the court time. We're not going to get the investment into the game. We've been talking about this for 30 years because Nobody's going to come. Hopefully they do after listening to this podcast to put in £500,000 for our junior program to give myself as a coach £30,000, please, to go in to help develop these players and then give us two, three hours a day on the floor. Because going back to mine and Steve's day, we did, we did eight hours, seven, eight hours a day of training. We would get up in the morning. We would shoot for two hours. Then we'd go into the gym, do weights and CV work, whether it's on the on the Stairmaster bike or treadmill. That's another hour and a half, two hours. Have a break and eat. And then in the evenings, we'll scrimmage for two, two, three hours. So we're looking at six, seven hours every day for us to maintain to get to where we wanted to go. So getting back to the point, let's focus on and this is just with my limited experience of uh, I think 10, nine years and uh, five medals or four medals as a junior national team coach focus on our strengths which is our athleticism our defense none of these european teams want to see us because they're scared of us defensively we can we can stop their nice little sets and flare screens and iverson cuts we can stop that we can rebound we're usually one of the best rebounding team top three rebounding teams in all european tournaments which helps us with our fast break we just have problems finishing like you said, whether we pull up 4-3 and even going for wide open layups. So let's focus on our strengths, make them better, and then the shooting will come because for years we've been talking about, oh, English players can't shoot. We can shoot, but it depends on who else. If you put them in a different setup, they'll be able to shoot. So I just think focus on our strengths and then we will knock down big shots when it when it matters. Look at Nuke Nelson when he played for us on the national team. He, he hit big shot after big shot after big shot. 
in the um, European tournaments. So it's about that individual player. So can you find a player that can help us as coaches to get us to that next level? And, and that's just my opinion on it. I'm conscious of the time, how much we've already done. Um, real quickly, Steve, um, and sure, both to, this, this is to both of you. Um, to, you know, not just two of the greatest players, but you, you can hear from the first minute of this podcast, two of the greatest competitors. Um, you're all about competing, about winning, both of you. Um, and yet, I'm starting to sense that a lot of our younger players um, are losing that real desire to compete and win, you know, like this, this tenacity to win. There's, there's, there's very few of them. I mean, I, not just because I coached him, but, you know, there's a reason why Newcastle, Newcastle have won a lot of trophies. And, and it isn't just Raymond Fletcher. I mean, Darius Defoe is there. This kid yes. wants to win. He's doing the dirty things, all of the little things to, to, to find a way of winning. Every coach in this league will tell you he's done that for almost 16, 17 years. Why are we not producing enough of these type of players um, as younger people? You know, um, I, I think, and I was talking about Darius and yourself when uh, Newcastle won the, the trophy because I said Darius played when, when me and Steve played in the league and when you took him up to Newcastle. And right. Pete Scantlebury was there, and he's still there. I think the, the the issue we have now is we're taking our young players from 12, 13, 14 years old, putting them through a system, and then they're going to the States or to academies or to universities, and then they're not realising. When they come out, they're, they're trying to play professionally. That professional game isn't there. Now they get lost between the ages of 22, 23, 24, and 25, and they fall out, fall out of love with the game, and then they go somewhere else. They go and find a job. Because you know as well as I do how hard it is to become a professional player, but if you're sold that dream and you got a dream big and you can't make it, now what does that do to that next person when you've dedicated your young life to trying to become a professional and then it's about making a living and a career? So I think this is something that we, we, need, we need to revisit with the whole structure of how we're doing it. And it's just, just on what I see from, you know, seeing players when they're finished in college or they're finished in university or they've done one or two years in the pros. There was a lot of issues around their mental health, you know, uh, who's, who's actually helping them and guiding them through that professional roller coaster and rocky road. It is a, it is a challenge. Steve? In terms of the tenacity of players and the determination um, and the resilience, that is a question. When you, when you talk to coaches in the States, that's what they talk, you know, they describe our English players as being soft, right? They, they, not all of them, but most of them. Again, we've got to look at society. I think plays a part over here. Um, this generational thing. I don't think we can help that. But also, coaches. I mean, it comes back to co it comes back to coaches. Um, you've got to put these players in more tough situations. You've got to put these players under a little bit of pressure. I'm not saying this for everybody, but that's the skill of a coach to identify the one that you can push. Identify uh, how do you make a diamond? It's pressure. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, great, great point. It's pressure. 
if you if you don't give it any pressure, it's still a cold, right? You take a cold, you don't give it enough pressure, it's still a cold. You, you give it enough pressure, it spins a diamond. Um, and I think players are, are, are concerned about um, what players will say about them, what people will say. But I think you got to identify. You got to have the skill to identify that kid who wants it. So. And, uh, and the way you do that probably is to continue to put them in scenarios that puts a little bit of pressure on them. Um, it doesn't matter if a kid says he wants to go to the NBA and he, he does this. First of all, physically, he's got to be able to do it, right? He's got to physically be able to do it. He's got to have the skills. Then he has to have the temperament. So all we can do is create environments in our sessions that can bring that out. I don't know how to make a kid tougher. I just had it because I came off, I came through a tough neighborhood from a tough background so i was i always just it was just tough you just had to be tough it's not the case now so what the coaches can do is facilitate that a little bit uh, so, it may mean that you won't be the, the kid's best friend uh but are you there to be his best friend or are you there to be his coach so you know it's, it's just, there's an art to it i think we've got to get more players um being tough i mean part of our pillars in basketball england is physically robust and persistent performer well, you're going to have some tenacity to do all this and you have to have resilience. So we're trying to identify players who have these, these type of traits and the more players we can get in the system that have those type of traits, the more I think will be a lot more successful than the ones who just say, well, I'm skillful because it'll take a lot more than just being skillful to make it. So Tony question and, and Steve's brought up a point is, we talk about coaches, 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 but, and I put myself in this category. Do you feel we know as coaches with our experience, because we have a lot of analytical and academic coaches, do we know what it takes as coaches to put that player through that journey to get them to that level? And these, this is one thing I, that goes through my mind a lot from in the past few years of what I've been doing with coaching. So that's the question I wanted to throw to you. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a, that is a great question. I mean, um, I've always, you know, from my philosophy, one of the cornerstones of my philosophy has always been, you know, discipline and hard work. So if those are the two things that start my coaching, you know, and I want, you know, discipline, hard work and competition in pretty much all drills in every practice. I want my players competing in every play of the game. I learned those things from, you know, from Joe, from, you know, from Laszlo, but, you know, from Kevin Cade, you saw that, you know, net demand, the demands on a player were always really hard. And I'm not sure, you know, we, and listen, Steve is completely right. At this moment, you know, player welfare, the mental state of a player, you know, these are all questions that are, are coming around now. Um, at the same time, you know, you've got to weigh that up. You know, this we, we're, we're, we're not here today discussing um, participation basketball. We're here talking about elite, elite. basketball. Um, and it's no good um, if we just, I'd say, player, player B, okay, has a chance, has a real chance to go and play high-level college basketball or high-level Europe and then potentially play in the NBA. We are doing him a disservice if we don't push him to the limit, okay? And, 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 and you know what? 
maybe is a case. Is it a case that um, he turns around to us and says that we're, you know, that we've done him wrong because we pushed him too hard? Uh, I don't, I don't remember, and I don't see that Pops Mensa Bonsu is saying anything about um, Joe uh, shouting at him all those times. While when he's the executive for the New York Knicks at this moment uh, and played in the NBA, do you do you see him saying no? You see him saying, you know, I get players that are working in banks now. And, um, you know, like, you know, play, people that have been super successful. I had a, had, I had a player, he, he's, he's a high-level executive in Morgan Stanley. He's telling me, you shaped my life. You know, all the running, all the pushing, all the things you did in those gyms in, in East London, you shaped my life. Well, I mean, it's a tough one. To, it's tough it's to know. Hey, and, 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 that, and that's my whole point. We're from a different era, and I know you... And Steve, well, you can answer that, Steve, is we've changed, or I know we've changed our coaching styles and we've we've had to fit in with certain players because of we, we have to create certain environments and there's a big shift in coaching. So, and, and, and I think we can get it done. We've got the quality coaches out there, but it's just how can we get there? And it's an ongoing journey. Really, real quickly, because I want you to answer this question uh, as quickly as possible, and then I'm going to do you the rapid fires. Um, Steve, uh, the coaching fraternity, or, you know, this is my, my question to a lot of the coaches on this podcast, you know, coaching in this in UK, you've been very complimentary. You said that you believe that coaching standards have risen. Um, do you think that we're connected as a coaching fraternity or do you think that we're still still fragmented and there's good pockets happening and good parts of practice i think we've covered it uh we're still fragmented uh we're trying to align everything as best we can but uh it will take some work uh we all we're all in the same fraternity and i think we need to understand that that uh, we're all in it for the benefit of the players regardless uh if we compete against each other uh, regardless uh, who wins and, and who loses, we need to work together collectively. That's a great point. Uh, that's a that's a really good point, actually. Um, you know, I I also uh, actually Mick Betts was shocked when I when I told him that um, I used to travel with Chris Finch to go and scout games. Um, I learned so much from Chris Finch just driving up and down the motorway. You know, like just talking basketball. You know, I don't, and I think that that's a loss on that. The same is also sometimes you know you can't win every single trophy and championship, and sometimes you have to you have to admit you know like hey you know that guy did a pretty good job coaching against me, um, and that was the other thing that I always you know now it's obviously I don't come from the player background that you guys do, but I always used to be like. I want to beat this guy, you know, like, you know, whenever I coached against him, like Nick Nurse, I was desperate to beat Nick, you know, every single time, you know, and Nick had a winning record against me almost, you know, exclusively. Chris Finch, actually, I think, I think ultimately I have a, a winning record against Chris. I was desperate. I was like, this will prove if I'm a really good coach or not right at the start. But I don't think we have that. Carl, um, real quickly on, on that to you. Yeah, question again about the fraternity, the coaching fraternity. Yeah, um, we, we've we've got some very good coaches, young and old, and I think there is uh, there's some fragmentation with with where the coaches come from. There's little pockets, but there is some very very good stuff going on. I think the key thing for me is when I speak with coaches individually, 
that's when they come out, they, they open up because I think there's some coaches who see certain coaches and they feel inferior when we should all feel superior together because that's going to make our players better. And I think something that Steve said, a lot of us as coaches, we forget that we're, we're here to serve the players and to make them better, which will make us ultimately better in the long run. That's a great point. Really good point. Okay, rapid fire, because I don't want to take you guys any further. Favorite, favorite basketball drill to coach Steve? Um, shell drill. I've always loved it. Shell drill. Awesome. And it was, I'm assuming that, like, that's right even from the start, from Roy and all the way through. Yeah. From, Roy's, from Roy's, Roy's days. He just loved to get into that defensive end, getting to your stance, um, understanding that you're working as a, as a team. Uh, again, that word collective to, to disrupt another team, right? That's what it's all about. Yeah. And obviously you put some uh, competitive um, systems in on it. So if you, you stop a team, you know, you get a point or whatever else. I, I just always loved that drill. So what right. one drill I loved. Right. Um, and, and I just want to just make that point, Carl, before the, the, you go in. Um, it's crazy that there are certain drills that you know it's like the zigzag drill okay when people ask me you know how can how can how can i get you know one coach said to me how can we become a better full court de defensive drill hey <laughs> your team you know zigzag you know listen it was probably yeah. it was probably made in the 40s you know fog allen those type of coaches who were doing the zigzag drill back in those years and yet it still has the relevance it does today you know some of these drills you can't replace them there's nothing nothing to replace them K KB, favorite drill. My, my, my zigzag and full court one on one defensive drill. That that that, that was my favorite. <laughs> Going one on one, uh, full court. Okay. Locking my man down, getting the rebound, and then just sprinting the other end and scoring, and then locking him back down again. I took pride <laughs> in in not letting my man get across half court. But that zigzag drill was the was the business. Awesome. Um, KB, uh, favorite all-time basketball coach? It doesn't have to be. It's crazy. I've asked this question now for almost forty coaches. We're talking. Wow. I'm talking to two of them that have, that have two people that have co been coached by some of the greatest. And so now this question, my, becomes, my, my favorite all-time coach, my yeah. favorite all-time coach would have to be uh, Coach Kremins. Yeah. Coach Kremins, but taking him aside. I've always been a, a, a Lakers fan and how Pat Riley did it, because Magic Johnson is my favorite player apart from Michael Jordan, but Pat Riley, the way he did it, it his suaveness back in the 80s with his slickness, definitely Pat Riley. Steve? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm a Carolina guy, so uh, okay. I, I, I have to go with, with Coach Smith. Uh, we've got too many fans out there. I'd be crucified. So, you Coach Dean crucified. Smith. <laughs> you be yeah, he's your first one, but other than Dean, I said Coach Kramer. You know, but who's your favorite pro coach? <laughs> I mean, the the if I had to go with another coach, it, it would be um, uh, Thompson from Georgetown. Okay. Yeah. John Thompson. Nice. Uh, awesome. I always admired him. Uh, I never got a letter from him. That would have been the only challenge to North Carolina, but. As the story goes, they never recruit the same players. So once one gets in there on a player, the other one doesn't get in there. Because believe me, that that would have been the only letter that I would have actually looked at more closely than uh, wow. than Dean Smith's letter. Right. 
Um, last last question, Steve. Um, your favorite go-to saying or statement that you say, you know, all the time to players? Um, again, I learned it from Coach Smith. Uh, the cream rises to the top. Okay, awesome. Uh, I remember when we, we were at uh, Clemson and uh, we were down, I think, 20. And the thing about Coach Smith, he was, he was always calm. He was always so calm. And we're down 20. We're in the Tigers' den. Remember that? Remember call down at Clemson, the Tigers' yeah. den, where everybody's yeah. looking down? Yeah, um, yeah. We're, we're playing terrible. Players are arguing with each other on the sidelines. And Coach calls us in at halftime. And he gives us this, this great speech. And it's like, you know, don't worry. The cream just always rises to the top. It just, everybody was like, wow, that's big time. So we went out there. Kenny had like 30 in the second half. And then we ended up beating him by by 10 or so. And everybody always after for the next few weeks, oh, the cream rises to the top. That's all everybody was saying. I, and I've never forgotten that. Awesome. That's great. A great yeah. story as well. KB? Yeah, yeah my mind's uh, just coach saying, always believe in yourself. Don't worry about making mistakes. And it never made sense because after you'd miss a shot, all the press is on you. You know, you've missed the last second shot or you've played terrible in a game. And then what you don't realize as a player, you're going to be put in that same situation. And can you make the, not make the same play twice? So when you believe in yourself and you show yourself that you can make that big play, it just makes you believe that you can do anything because you don't realize you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be in that same situation again, and you're going to be successful. You know, it's like what Michael Jordan said about missing a thousand shots, and you just keep shooting. So it's uh, it, it's that saying, and that's what I say to my players: don't worry about making mistakes, and then they, they they don't understand. And then I, I'll say two, three games later, you see, you missed that shot the last game. Look what you did this game, and they go, oh. So um, yeah, that, that's one thing that I always resonates with me. That's great. Guys, um, you know that uh, I've always, you know, looked up to you, you know, from, you know, from when I was, you know, first in, involved in the game as a young, young person. And, you know, again, you know, really and truthfully, we, we, we need more people to understand, you know, your, your knowledge and your experience and how much it can help coaches. You know, I hope that you're always going to be continuing to be part of the game. And, you know, I just want to thank you today to, you know, giving your time um, on this podcast. So really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure, Tony. If you'd have went another 10 minutes, we would have charged you, but you just made it. So it's a pleasure. <laughs> It's always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Time Out. You can now find all of our episodes on iTunes and Spotify, so please like, subscribe, and let us know who you'd like to hear from in a future episode.